0: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio... Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Dustin Growick, who does all sorts of great dinosaur-related videos on YouTube.
1: And many other dinosaur-related projects.
0: Yes. <laughs> we have Dinosaur of the Day at Quantasaurus, and we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, as always, we like to thank some of our patrons who keep our podcast running and help us pay for hosting and all of the other... Things you have to pay for when you run a podcast.
1: And just make us feel warm and fuzzy inside, (laughs) especially around the holidays.
0: Yes, it's a great Christmas gift for us. (laughs) So thank you specifically this week to Chris, Nicholas, Trent Carbajal, Stefan, Nutmeg, Taya, Dashiell Hammond, Stego Sophie, Lalin, Ayumi, Paula Canthus, Lydia, Kentish, and Jackson Crawford.
1: Yeah. Thanks again so much. It really means a lot to us. And if you want to join this group of amazing people, then check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash I for some cool rewards.
0: It's not too late to give us a Christmas present.
1: <laughs> or New Year's.
0: <laughs> yeah, there you go. We will accept any sort of holiday gift. <laughs>
1: <laughs> any time of the year. <laughs> yes.
0: Flag day. I would take flag day gifts for sure.
1: <laughs> it's an important one. <laughs>
0: And now jumping into the news, we have another new dinosaur, as per usual. This one was published in the Annals of the Brazilian Academy of Sciences and written by Jorge Calvo and Bernardo Riga. And it's a new titanosaur from Argentina. Nice. We're going old school. It's been a while since we had a titanosaur from Argentina. Mm -hmm. It used to be like every week there was a new titanosaur from Argentina, but we had a little break. (laughs) This one's named... Baalsaurus, I, and Baalsaurus is after the dinosaur site where it was found. And additionally, Baal is the Phoenician god of fertility, which I think is why that area is named Baal. And then I is after Juan Eduardo Mancia, who discovered the fossil. So that's a good choice for a, a fossil name, I think.
1: Yeah, agreed. And Juan's also a technician at the Geology and Paleontology Museum of the National University of Comahue. Hopefully, I didn't butcher that pronunciation too much.
0: Now, typically from Argentina, we only find partial sauropod remains. We're used to finding primarily, like large leg bones, is a pretty typical thing from Argentina. This time, we only found a single dentary, which is half of the lower jaw. It's a more unusual bone to find, they said, of the dozens of known titanosaurs named, only nine have been found with a dentary. So wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's always good to find. I'm a little bit spurious on naming a new dinosaur after a dentary, though. I was a little curious
1: about that, too, when I read it, because it seems like it used to be more common to name new dinosaurs based on very few bones, and less so lately.
0: Yeah, Yeah, especially because when you're naming a new species, you want to know that it's unique from other related species, which really means that you need to have some overlap in the bones so that you can compare them. And like we were saying, we've got tons of dinosaurs named from Argentina that are titanosaurs, and they're known from other parts of the body. So in North America, we only have Alamosaurus because most of the finds don't have overlapping material. So we can't be certain that they aren't the same genus. So to be conservative, we just say, well, they're all Alamosaurus. And (laughs) maybe later on, we'll find some bones that fit in the rest of the puzzle. And then we can tell that they're not all the same dinosaur. But it seems like they're taking a different tact. And they're like, well, this jaw is different than the other nine jaws that we found. So we're going to name it a new species. I think it's pretty likely that it'll either get synonymized with another titanosaur later, if we find more bones that fill in the gap and it lines up with a pre-existing named titanosaur or i think it might just get invalidated because we won't be able to show that it's unique i'm not sure we'll see but the details of the dentary are kind of interesting it has 13 teeth and it's l-shaped they call it which gives it kind of a rectangular snout It's got, you know, more of an angular kind of jaw, like you can think of some of those dogs, like maybe a schnauzer or something that has that kind of squared off mouth on it. Whereas, you know, like some of the other snouts you might see, like on a bird, it's very pointy. (laughs) Uh, They said there's also a lot of U-shaped snouts, which I, I guess that might be more like a crocodile or something, where it's kind of more, you know, rounded in the front. Because the dentary is really just half of the jaw, and so they only since they only found one dentary, it's just that one sort of hockey stick shaped part of the jaw on the bottom. The dentary is pretty similar to Bonitasaura that we've talked about before. And because of that, they just used the Bonitasaura skull to scale this dentary up and figured that, well, it's probably about a forty centimeter long skull, if they had found the whole skull, which would only be a foot and four inches too. It's Pretty small for such a huge dinosaur, although I guess we don't really know exactly how large the dinosaur was since all we have is a dinosaur.
1: <laughs> True, but if it's being classified as a titanosaur, you would think it is larger.
0: Yeah, although I guess a lot of times they do have kind of small heads, yeah. relatively speaking. True. If you're interested in seeing this, I don't think it's on public display, but it is housed at the Geology and Paleontology Museum of the National University of Komohue Museum. And up next is a paper by Yang and others, and it was published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, and thanks to Steve for emailing it to us. It's kind of a pterosaur aside. We usually try to stick specifically to dinosaurs because there are so many other Mesozoic creatures that we haven't really gone through all the dinosaur stuff yet.
1: Right, but this one could be related to dinosaurs.
0: Yeah, very much so. So the article starts pterosaurs were the first vertebrates to achieve true flapping flight. So obviously the other animal that achieved flapping flight in the Mesozoic was dinosaurs. (laughs) But unfortunately for pterosaur researchers, they went extinct at the end of the Mesozoic. Whereas we, you know, obviously we have birds. So for birds, we can kind of look at modern birds and we can figure out a lot of details about how different bones might have been structured, what kind of muscles they might have had and things like that. Whereas pterosaur researchers are kind of missing a lot of this information. And one of the things that they're missing is feathers. So we have modern bird feathers that we can kind of compare back and try to trace the evolution into dinosaurs. But for pterosaurs, we have a lot more unknowns about the feathers. And it's kind of important because One of the biggest questions about feathers is when exactly they evolved. We know that modern birds are the only thing that still have feathers, but there are all these other archosaur lineages, like pterosaurs, that may have had feathers. So the question is, did just dinosaurs evolve feathers? Did they evolve just within a specific branch of dinosaurs, like theropods? And then maybe separately with things like, you know, certain ceratopsians or something? Or did they evolve way back in the early days of the Triassic with some other archosaur, and then that same feather evolution was passed on to both dinosaurs and pterosaurs. Because we have found pterosaurs in the past with some sorts of proto feathers. So we know that they at least had some kind of feather. So the new finding, what it is, is two new pterosaurs that were found in the middle, late Jurassic about 165 to 160 million years ago with feathers. And the thing that makes them kind of unique is that the feathers had some branching. They weren't just single filaments. So you're starting to see these sorts of different structures. There's all sorts of weird different feathers that came out. Some of these kind of look like a feather duster where they just kind of all come from a central point and then fluff out like a downy feather. Other ones are a little bit more branched. They're starting to look a little bit more advanced, almost like getting to flight feather sort of territory. And then of course there are the monofilaments that we've seen before. It's not really that much older than the previous finds, so they had found stuff from like the 150 million year sort of time frame, maybe even 160, so this is only like 5 to 10 million years before those, but it is, you know, another step back so we can kind of assume that these more advanced feathers may have been in common between other archosaurs if you really want to connect the dots and assume that it didn't evolve more than once. And the authors kind of hypothesize along those lines, saying that just as the early mammals evolved hair to insulate their warm-blooded bodies in the Triassic when they evolved, archosaurs may have evolved fuzzy feathers around the same time to insulate themselves as well. So maybe we had these fuzzy little mammals and these fuzzy little archosaurs (laughs) kind of around because of convergent evolution in the beginning of the Triassic, and then they turned into pterosaurs and dinosaurs and, you know bunnies and people (laughs) way down the line and we all still have you know hair or feathers because it all evolved from that same evolutionary pressure way back then but as always we need more fossils gotta find some good stuff from the triassic and see if it had feathers
1: it's a tall order
0: it is i mean finding the right preservation environment for feathers is tricky but hopefully we will i believe (laughs) there's a lot of earth out there (laughs) Some of it's got to have good Triassic, you know, lake deposits. And up next, getting back to the real dinosaur stuff, thanks to Chris for sharing this one with us on Twitter. There's a new article by Anthony Schilley and Neil Davies in Paleogeography, Paleoclimatology, and Paleoecology, where they talk about a new dinosaur trackway that was discovered in southern England, specifically near East Sussex which at first to me seemed kind of surprising because so many people live on Britain and it's not that big of an island. You'd think all of the exposed dinosaur tracks would have been found by now.
1: That's if you know what you're looking for.
0: Exactly. Plus, when I looked at the picture in the document, it's like a whole bunch of sheer cliffs and it's like partway up the cliff. So it's not the kind of place where there's a bunch of people just hanging out on the beach and it's right there. The cool thing is they found 85 tracks that they think are dinosaur tracks in 13 different morphotypes or shapes, and they think it represents at least seven different species. Wow. Yeah, so it's a a pretty good diversity. That's really the most exciting types of trackways are either when they're all the same species or when you find a whole bunch of different species are my favorite ones.
1: Yeah, what were they all doing? Exactly.
0: Why were they all there at the same time, potentially? So specifically, there are Iguanodontians, Ankylosaurians, Stegosaurs, And what they call gracile theropods and ornithopods, basically thinner ornithopods and theropods. And then possibly there were also dromaeosaurs and sauropods in the mix, pretty much hitting all the highlights there. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they left off the bigger ornithopods and some of the stuff like ceratopsians, but this formation is from the early Cretaceous, 145 to 133 million years ago. So it kind of makes sense that you don't have these big hadrosaurs and things yet. But that diversity is really what makes the area so special, especially because of the Thyreophoran tracks, meaning the Ankylosaur and the Stegosaur tracks, because those aren't all that common in England in these sort of assemblages with different types of tracks. The tracks are from the Ashdown formation, which is, like I said, early Cretaceous. And the really great part of it is that the quality of the preservation of some of the tracks is astonishing. It's got like basically skin impressions in the track so you can tell exactly what like the surface of the bottom of the foot looks like see all the little scale impressions and things it's pretty awesome but they're not all like that because it's across a fairly wide piece of land I mean you can imagine if it's 85 tracks and depending on exactly what they stepped on basically and like what the mud consistency was like because they were walking in mud sometimes they squished in too far and then it kind of destroyed the track when they got out of it or they didn't squish in enough and then they didn't get all the detail either so there's kind of a sweet spot where it's just soft enough to leave a really good impression and then you can step out of it without screwing it up one of the reasons they're in such good condition is that they are on this like cliff face so they're not down in tide pools like we sometimes see when fossilized footprints are found on the coast and then the waves are just slowly destroying them but they mentioned, it's kind of funny, because one of the notes in the article is like, well, they put in a seawall, so it's going to prevent the sea from further excavating the cliff. Because we think there might be more footprints behind it, but, <laughs> you know, it, you know, all this anti-erosion stuff we're doing, <laughs> is it going to let it happen? Interesting. Yeah.
1: Also, when you think about how much the earth has changed. Oh, yeah. To have those tracks that used to be on flat land.
0: Yeah, like sideways on a cliff on an island. And then
1: somehow there's more tracks behind it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. They're piled up, but like horizontally. I also just think it's funny that some people want the cliff to slowly fall down.
1: (laughs) (laughs) See those tracks.
0: Yeah. Like I hinted at, they think that they fossilized so well because the dinosaurs walked in mud. And then they think what happened after that was that the footprints were buried in like river sediment in a crevasse splay which is basically where like a river floods and it kind of like blasts out all this bank of the river into the surrounding area and it covers stuff up sometimes we find dinosaur fossils in areas like that where we think something got buried in these floods but in this case all we found was footprints And one point that I think you might like Sabrina is that they propose that the dinosaurs may have sort of affected the landscape of the rivers and lakes that they might have been wading in mm. because they were walking out into the sort of shoreline area and that might have shaped the banks while they were walking into them. Interesting. Yeah.
1: And it's because there were so many of them?
0: Yeah, exactly. And they're heavy. and They're walking there so much. Yeah, especially if they're sauropods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's pretty speculative. They even note like... You know, this is just random speculation, but sure. it could have happened.
1: It's nice to think about.
0: Mm-hmm. And last in our article news for the year, because this is our last episode of the year.
1: Crazy. This it, year flew by.
0: It did. <laughs> <laughs> We've got an article by Danielle Smith-Paredes and others published in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. And it's all about sort of dinosaur skulls and how they changed over time. So Like
1: growth series? No. Oh, Oh, just in general.
0: Yeah, not... So you're talking about ontogeny. I'm talking about phylogeny. Okay. So this is over time in terms of evolution, not in terms of their life. It's a good distinction to make for sure. And like I hinted at before, since we have modern dinosaurs in the form of birds, we can do fancy little tests on baby dinosaurs and see sort of how they develop. (laughs) Like chickens? Yeah, exactly. Chickens, I think in this test, they use chickens, ducks... Some other bird from Chile. I think they had quite a few little different dinosaurs that they were studying. But what they wanted to know was how modern birds ended up losing two of the bones that non-avian dinosaurs have in their skull. So specifically right around the eyeball in non-avian dinosaurs back in the Mesozoic, they had a post-orbital bone and a prefrontal bone. So the prefrontal is kind of in front on top sort of like a brow sort of area where they had a bone. And then the post-orbital is like right behind the eye, as you might guess, because post-orbit behind the eye. But in modern birds, they don't have either of these bones. So for a long time, the question has been, well, where did those bones go? And according to the authors, the previous assumption was basically they just were lost during evolution. Hmm. So kind of like, you know, you see a T-Rex and it's only got two fingers. You just figure like, oh, well, you know, the other fingers sort of went away over time. But the other possibility is that the bones fused and it kind of gets incorporated (laughs) into the other bones as the bird grows onto genetically. So we see that, like we talk about the scapula and the coracoid, which are both fused in the modern bird and we just call it a scapula coracoid because it's now those two bones smooshed together (laughs) and it's really clear that that's what happened. So we just like, now it's just one big bone, which used to be two bones. And basically, it turns out that that's exactly what happened with modern birds. So they stained the skeletons of some bird embryos to see what their skeletons looked like while they were developing. And they saw that when the birds were really young embryos, they still had this separate prefrontal and the separate post-orbital bones. And then as they got a little bit older, those fused into the surrounding bones. So now all of a sudden... They have two less bones. So if we had known about this before, since the post-orbital fuses to the frontal, maybe we'd be calling it like a post-orbital frontal, <laughs> kind of like they do with the scapula coracoid because, you know, they are separate bones at one point and then they get fused together. So now the frontal basically goes right to the edge of the eye on the backside there because there is no more post-orbital kind of in between them. And then the prefrontal bone fuses to the nasal during the development, so that by the time the bird is born, the nasal just looks a little bit larger than it would in a different dinosaur where that hadn't fused. And if you're wondering, the nasal bone is the bone that connects the top of the head, right where the frontal is, all the way down to the premaxilla, which is near the tip of the beak. So the frontal is kind of like the top of the head. And then like if you imagine you have a big snout, <laughs> so like the frontal would be the top of your head. And then the nasal would be sort of that part that connects the snout, like the tip of your snout to the top of your head. Or if you're wearing a mask, the top of the mask would be the, the that, nasal.
1: That might be easier to imagine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of interesting because this is more evidence that birds are, in fact, dinosaurs. I don't think anyone's really questioning that anymore. But in case you need another piece of evidence, this is very clear evidence that they have a dinosaur skull that just has turning into a bird skull. And you can see a little bit of that while they're developing. And I think the especially useful part is that this might be useful in evo-devoing a chicken <laughs> because we can see during development they still have all the elements of a dinosaur skull and we already know you can add teeth back and separate the dentaries and get rid of the beak so yeah we're getting close closer all the time I guess I don't really know how to stop these bones from fusing yet but we can figure it out
1: you seem so excited
0: (laughs) I really want to see a living dinosaur (laughs) a little one though yeah it's a little one that's why chickenosaurus is appealing Mm. be like a little compsignathus sized thing
1: (laughs) You mean non-avian dinosaur because you could go see a chicken.
0: Oh, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) A chicken is a chickenosaurus. Is that what you're saying?
1: (laughs) Get some updates on the dinosaurs in Oregon. So a few episodes ago, we talked about a toe bone that was found in 2015 and published by Greg Retallick this year of an unnamed ornithopod. That was the first publication about a dinosaur found in Oregon. And then in November, Dave Taylor published about another dinosaur found in Oregon, which was the sacrum of a Hadrosaur. However, it turns out he and that team found that fossil in the early 1960s at Cape Sebastian. They just weren't able to excavate it until 1994. And that one weighed about 70 pounds. It was over two feet long. It took many volunteers and apparently a bunch of children volunteered to help dig it out. And the crew brought the fossil to Portland, but then it wasn't until Taylor retired in 2013 that he had time to prepare the fossil. And both researchers knew about each other's finds, but they weren't racing to publish first. No bone wars kind of thing here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, obviously.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So now the toe bone is on display at the Museum of Natural and Cultural History at the University of Oregon, and there's plans to display the hadrosaur sacrum somewhere in Portland early next year.
0: I saw somewhere that they weren't sure that it was definitely a hadrosaur yet, And then it might have been some marine animal.
1: That was before he published.
0: Oh, okay, it was. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was in the paper where he was naming the toe bone. He was like, there might be this hadrosaur sacrum, but it could be something else. Yeah,
1: that was the only reference they had because it was unpublished, though. Until it was formally described, which it now is.
0: Cool. The hadrosaur sacrum is probably a lot more exciting looking than the toe bone. The toe bone literally just looks like a rock. (laughs) <laughs> I saw a, like a re- rotating 3D image of it and you're like, yeah, that's that's a really worn down rock. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's surprising they could even figure out that it was from an ornithopod. Yeah. And that's as specific as they can get because it's pretty damaged.
1: But still cool because the odds of finding dinosaur fossils in Oregon.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think they were both off the coast, mm-hmm. like in marine settings. So you wouldn't expect them to be like immaculate. Mm-hmm.
1: BBC published a story on how a shepherd found one of South Africa's largest dinosaur bone beds. Dumangwe Thayopeka was visiting his family's burial place in eastern Cape Province, and he saw a really large bone. And one of the locals in the area, James Rallain, said that it was a dinosaur bone. And so they brought the bone to a third person, Jikachika who is a geography teacher at a nearby school, and the three of them that got paleontologists from Vitz University to confirm that, yes, this is a dinosaur bone. So the university, they worked with other universities to start excavating the site earlier this year, and they think that there's at least 12 dinosaur species and hundreds of fossils at the site from the Jurassic era. Wow, that's super cool. Yeah, and now the three original people who were involved hope that the site can become a UNESCO heritage site to attract researchers and tourists and help boost the local economy. Cool. Yeah. In another part of the world, the Canadian Museum of Nature posted about their work on preparing a large triceratops skull. And they've been working on the backside of the frill for more than five months now. They found fossilized skin, and they still need to prepare the rest of the skull to find out more details. But that's pretty cool. And that could totally change the way we think triceratops looked. That's what they were saying.
0: Yeah, because there have been questions about like, was it covered in keratin or... You know, what was on the frill. Mm-hmm. So it's good to get some information about that.
1: Brian Sweetek published an interesting article on Smithsonian about how the asteroid impact was only a part of the story of the KPG extinction, which, yeah, we've we've talked about that before. So there's researchers who are looking at, quote, the broader patterns of life at the time, and quote, instead of just the moment of impact. There were a lot of things happening at the time. So, for example, quote, sea levels were dropping, the climate was trending toward a cooler world, and a part of prehistoric India called the Deccan Traps was bubbling with intense volcanic activity, end quote. So, to understand the impact of the asteroid, Paul Barrett from the Natural History Museum in London said that we need to know the rates of extinction before the event. And he said, quote, this would make the difference between the cataclysmic events at Chicxulub being either the primary cause of the extinction or merely the coup de grace that finished off an ecosystem whose resilience had been gradually worn away, end quote. Which makes sense. And that's a question we've heard a few times come up. It would also be good to know how the different ecosystems around the world handled the impact. So what was going on there before and after some places where there are more frequent fires or how did the dying out of one animal affect things? For example, Triceratops was a major food source and also helped to disperse seeds. So what happened when it went away? Those plants, they would have suffered. Other plants that they may have trampled may have done better.
0: Yeah, and if it's like you're in bad conditions, maybe something else couldn't just step in and take its place. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's also interesting to look at what survived and why because you know a lot of the small animals that could eat a variety of foods did make it but not all of them
0: yeah a ton of stuff went extinct all over the place it wasn't just that simple the difficult thing though is it's so hard to get that kind of resolution mm-hmm. to see like the order that things went extinct because in geological time you're usually talking like millions of years mm-hmm. and all this extinction is like more on the thousands of years sort of time scale so it's a couple orders of magnitude more granular (laughs) than we can get right now.
1: Yeah. Well, also, if you want to, like what they were saying, look at the local ecosystems of various places, and you have to, in some of these places, probably get lucky. Mm -hmm. Is there enough stuff there that you can get any useful information out of it?
0: Yeah, because even if you can find that sort of time resolution, it's not going to be all in the same place. Mm -hmm. So you have to hope that there's enough overlap with the types of animals there that it makes any sense.
1: In other news, Mike Taylor and Matt Wadell from SV Power writing a paper on GitHub about how to orient vertebra. And because it's on GitHub, anybody can see it. GitHub, in case you don't know, it's where a lot of developers store their code for different apps and things along those lines. But you can put anything on there. People put websites and blogs and all kinds of stuff. So anybody can see their paper. You can see a history of the changes they've made. And anybody can contribute. You can suggest adding something that's missing. You can help with the grammar. You can even directly edit. If you do that, they can choose to accept or reject the change. And the whole idea of this process is to demythologize the process of writing a paper. Interesting. Yeah.
0: I've Never heard of writing a scientific paper on GitHub before, that's for sure.
1: Yeah, it's pretty cool because then you can see, all right, what's, what are they doing? How is it different from writing other things? Which they said it's not, except for citing sources. In Ulsan, South Korea, there's a new dinosaur footprint park, and it surrounds real dinosaur footprints that are about 100 million years old. There's 77 footprints of herbivores and three footprints of carnivores, so it's possible that one carnivore was going after nine herbivores. Interesting. Yeah. So they have four animatronic life sized dinosaurs. There's a T Rex, Brachiosaurus, Stegosaurus, Spinosaurus, and kids can also dig up dinosaur fossils.
0: Or dig up quote unquote dinosaur fossils. Well, yeah,
1: not not the
0: real ones. <laughs> Little concrete molds. <laughs>
1: Something. <laughs> In Germany, there's a museum called Gondwana das Prehistorium. And according to one review, there's some surprises that, quote, involve water, a life-size dinosaur, and feeling like Captain Ahab in Moby Dick, end quote. <laughs>
0: it's a lot of things.
1: Yeah. So basically there's animatronic dinosaurs. There's an exhibit that features megalodon. That's where you feel like you're in Moby Dick. It's not a dinosaur. Still cool. And then there's a time travel section and an indoor play area for kids. I'm curious what it means to feel like you're a captain of the ship, though. They didn't really explain it. They didn't want to ruin the surprise. Gotcha. (laughs) Next, Johnny Sun, who writes for the show BoJack Horseman on Netflix, uh, won a toy dinosaur at a bowling alley and then posted on Twitter for people to explain to him what it looked like. Because it looks like a toy that you'd send to the Your Dinosaurs Are Wrong series on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) It's been described as looking like a chicken nugget which it kind of does i think it's the coloring because it's kind of yellowish it's also been described as quote unquote (laughs) t-rect or a banana that wished to be real and many more the one person pointed out that it's a replica of a painting of megalosaurus which was made by Nev parker around 1960 and when i saw the painting it made total sense because it's how we used to think megalosaurus looked like
0: is it like Crystal Palace dinosaurs? Yeah. Sort
1: of? Kind of bear-like.
0: Oh, yeah. With like four legs, quadrupedal.
1: Yeah. Very strange head.
0: Yeah. Yeah, bear-like head. That's a good description of it, actually. Like a really big, weird bear. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and that is exactly what this toy looks like, except it's got the coloring of a chicken nugget. Interesting. And red eyes.
0: As you do. <laughs> Some birds have red eyes. Who knows? Could be.
1: Yeah. Now we have some Jurassic Park, Jurassic World news. So first, Jurassic Park has been added to the National Film Registry, which means it has been deemed worth preserving.
0: Surprised it hadn't yet. Yeah. It's been long enough.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe because all the new movies are coming out that got them to think about it. Could be, yeah. The game Jurassic World Evolution has a new update. There's three new dinosaurs you can have in your park. Iguanodon, Dredonatus, and Carcharodontosaurus. So if anyone's playing that game can get those dinosaurs.
0: Cool. I might have to pick it up again and play it. <laughs> get some new dinos. Yeah. I didn't realize a guanodon was missing. That's kind of weird.
1: Yeah. But I like how they added Dreadnoughtus.
0: Mm-hmm. Carcharodontosaurus is a cool one, too. Mm-hmm. Because the only huge meat eater, I think... Oh, I guess there were two, because I think there was Spinosaurus and T-Rex.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Carcharodontosaurus is definitely up there, though. They might have had Giganotosaurus. I don't remember. Got to play it some more, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. <laughs>
1: And last, we've got an update on Jurassic World 3, because, you know, it's coming out soon, June 11th, 2021. (laughs) (laughs) Colin Trevorrow talked about his plans for the film. He's co-writing it. He doesn't plan on having dinosaurs ravage cities. He said, quote, they can't organize. The world I get excited about is the one where it's possible that a dinosaur might run out in front of your car on a foggy back road or invade your campground looking for food, Hmm. end quote. And he said that he's watching a lot of Planet Earth for ideas, and also that this film will wrap up the whole franchise.
0: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what he wants. We'll see.
1: Right. If it's really popular, maybe until so it gets rebooted another, another twenty years. years. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe five. <laughs> it's okay by us.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Making it more like an invasive species mm-hmm. rather than like a superpower organized civilization, like Planet of the Apes style.
1: Yeah. Or even The Lost World with the T-Rex attacking San Diego. Mm -hmm.
0: Although that was a great scene. I really enjoyed that.
1: Yeah. (laughs) But it's good. They're trying something different. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th, or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash DinoDig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash DinoDig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G.
0: Now we're going to go on to our interview with Dustin, but in case you're a patron, you might want to listen to the extended version in the premium feed.
1: Bonus material. Yay. We're here with Dustin Groick, who is an amazing SciComm guy, and he does tours at the American Museum of Natural History in New York through Museum Hack, where he's the senior creative consultant. And he's the host of Versus, Caveat's live science debate show, the host of the popular YouTube channel, The Dinosaur Show with Dustin Growick, and the author of a couple of books, including Utterly Amazing Dinosaurs and Dinosaur A to Z.
2: That makes you sound very busy.
1: You, you do.
0: Are you less busy than your sound?
1: <laughs> Actually, no. no. <laughs> Sounds about right when you think about it. Well, thanks for chatting with us today, considering all the things you're doing. Oh no
2: worries. I'm ex- I mean, there's nothing more fun to talk about than, than dinosaurs, especially with other dinosaur nerds. So
1: <laughs> Yes,
0: that is accurate.
1: <laughs> well, how did you first get into dinosaurs and and the whole SciComm thing?
2: Um, so I've always worked in museums, um, and science centers, and you know, I like ki- I like dinosaurs as much as anyone else as a kid, and then I kind of rekindled that love when I worked at the American Museum of Natural History, probably about 9 years ago at this point. Um, cuz honestly, like dinosaurs are the Easiest way to get kids, like I always called dinosaurs a gateway drug to science, mm-hmm. right? Everyone loves them, they're universally revered, and you don't have to get people like it's an easy inroads to start talking about <laughs> life and biology and evolution and, and our planet in general. Um, that and they're big and crazy looking, so what's not to love? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very true.
1: <laughs> so, your YouTube channel, The Dinosaur Show, how'd, how'd that get going? I've always wanted to
2: do something on video. And so I started that mostly because I wanted to demonstrate, honestly, to demonstrate value as like a science educator or science communication host for some sort of platform. And dinosaurs were my favorite thing to talk about. And they're the thing I probably know much the most about. So it was an easy, easy way to start, like putting myself out there and trying a different medium because i do my main medium is in museums whether it's tours or educational programs but i wanted to try something that was like really mine that i that i wrote and planned out and honestly with the idea of of seeing where it could go whether i could take that actual concept and maybe get it sponsored or something either or keep on making more videos or again simply kind of demonstrating and practicing as a science communicator that might lead to other different types of gigs so mm-hmm. It's fun, and anyone who like makes a thing themselves and cuts and edits it, edits it and writes it and all that jazz knows how much longer it takes than yeah. anyone would imagine. Um, so I don't make as many videos as I would like, just because I also have a full time job and other stuff. But I still love it. In fact, there's there will be a new video coming out in the next month in which I race a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Fun. <laughs> just gonna leave it at that as a little bit of a teaser. <laughs>
0: Cool. You briefly just now mentioned sort of the museum hack project that you're involved with. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So about f- almost five years ago at this point, I was working at the New York Hall of Science, and I went to a here in New York City. There's um, there's a group called Nick It's New York City Museum Educators Roundtable. We we love our acronyms. <laughs> and so I went to I went I went to some of these meetings. And I was meeting other. Museum educators throughout the city, and I met this woman that had started working with a guy who started a thing called Museum Hack. I'd never heard about it. I guess they'd only been doing it for a couple of months, and what it was, was this woman and the guy who started it were leading what they called renegade tours at the Metropolitan (laughs) Museum. They were tours where it was basically like, here, I'm going to – give me an hour on a Friday night because the Mets open late. So give me an hour. I'm going to show you five things I love, three things I want to steal, bring a flask. (laughs) Right. So it was, it was, it was definitely a different type of tour and it was couched and aimed specifically at most, well, primarily millennials, right? The 20 to 40 year old demographic and especially people who don't really think of museums as a place for them or a place that they would normally go. Mm -hmm. And they started doing this different type of tour that definitely was geared towards a different group of people that maybe the museum wasn't really hitting so well. Like it's no secret museums do great work for school groups and for families and for some of the older demographics that are bought into what we think of as like a traditional, I'm throwing up air quotes, <laughs> traditional museum experience. And so this, the idea of this was like, let's try to get a whole new group of people to come and experience these amazing places. And so I went on the tour with them at the Met and I was like, this is amazing, I love it. How come you're not doing this thing across the park at the American Museum of Natural History?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It was my baby. And they're like, well, we thought about maybe at some point doing that and I was like, you know what? I wanna make that happen. <laughs> Because before the Hall of Science, I'd worked at M and h for two years as an educator. And I was like, you know what? I want to make this happen. So I designed our, I don't even call it a tour. I called it a two-hour museum adventure hmm. at the American Museum of Natural History with the idea being that like, if I had two hours with a group of friends here, what could I show them that would blow their mind, teach them some stuff, and get them leaving loving this place almost as much as I do? Nice. And so we started doing these tours. And we've been doing them now for almost five years. My main role at Museum Hack now, while I still do a couple tours a month, my main role is actually go to museums and train staff and model out the ways in which we do tours and engagements and events differently so those museums can kind of take on some of that strategy to reach this hard-to-reach millennial demographic.
0: So do you include flasks in your American Museum of Natural History tour?
2: The (laughs) flasks that we have, once we became like legit and above board, um, (laughs) we don't bring flasks anymore. Um, But you'll leave drunk on science. Does that
1: count? <laughs> nice, nice. Nice well, save. <laughs> yeah, so what do you do in, in two hours at the American Museum of Natural History?
2: Uh, what don't we do? It is a <laughs> whirlwind tour. So the way the tour is different is it's much more, it's much faster paced. We focus on yeah, We see some highlights, right? We're going to see the blue whale. We're going to see the dinosaurs. We're also going to hear a lot of like the crazy backstories that you don't hear on a standard tour. You're going to hear a lot of gossip. you know you're gonna when when you're not of the museum you can approach topics a little bit differently Mm -hmm. like you know and i always start from a point of love i I do i love that museum it's my favorite museum in the world and now that i've been fortunate enough to have this job where i go to a bunch of museums i have a larger sample size to now like legit say that i think that is one of the best museums in the world (laughs) yeah same time because i love it and revere it so much and i know the science it's kind of like a sibling but you can also poke fun at it I'm gonna point out the stuff that's like, why would they do this? Or like, this really needs to be updated. Or this is just straight up racist. And this hall hasn't been updated since however long. So you you hear kind of an alternative viewpoint. Um, We think very specifically at the museum hack about the way we tell stories. There's a very specific way we outline every tour stop narrative. That we know we're gonna get people bought in, get them excited and show them the mind blowing facts. Like almost have mic drops at the end of stories. We think very specifically about how we tell stories. But I think even more importantly, we always, always, always bake in to the entire tour a sense of community and a sense of agency. So like we're on this adventure together. It's not just about me as the guide telling you stuff. We're on this adventure together. And I'm gonna ask you guys to do stuff too and be part and parcel to the experience. So we play a lot of games, we do a lot of photo challenges, we do activities that get people looking in the space a little bit differently. So again, it's not just kind of the unilateral delivery of information that a traditional tour is.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have to plan for, because sometimes they'll have temporary exhibits in different museums, do you have to change your format a little bit for those?
2: We generally don't, on our tours, go into temporary exhibits because there's an extra surcharge that right. goes in there. A lot of museums have policies that, that third-party tour groups like ourselves are just not allowed to go into temporary exhibits, so we stay uh, in the public exhibits.
0: Is it, so you mentioned like the policies. Or is anybody just allowed to like create a museum tour and just <laughs> take people in? like the way you guys do, or do you have to like do some kind of, you know, work something out with the museum to be allowed to do it?
2: So we've always been in the camp of asking for forgiveness rather than permission.
0: (laughs) Um,
2: No, but so these two major museums in New York that we work out of, they're public museums, right? Our tax dollars as New York City, New York state residents pay for them. And so they have open lecture policies. Like there are tons of third party groups that do tours and birthday parties and scavenger hunts and stuff. So we're not the only ones that do that. We do go through group services now to buy our tickets in bulk because that helps them track how many people are coming in. We get a slight discount as well. But at the end of the day, our whole goal is to get new people to come to the museum and get them to love the place, like full stop, mm-hmm. right? And so in, in addition to that, like, if you were just to walk to this museum, go into this museum, it suggests a donation at the Museum of Natural History. So you can pay a dollar, right? But built into your museum hack tour ticket price is the full suggested donation so we're making the museum money we're getting new people to come and we're getting them to love the place so at the end of the day i mean at first people are a little wary but then once they understand who we are and what we're about like we're all on the same page and all on the same team here
1: yeah it's a win-win-win yeah
0: <laughs> cool do you have a favorite dinosaur specimen
1: favorite at
2: am and or yeah. in general <laughs> if you
0: have a favorite one that's not at AMNH, that's also a yeah. Favorite. Well, I mean, you've been to many museums now,
2: and we'll, we'll stick with the AMNH training I actually, I think the T Rex at AMNH is is pretty great. I know Sue at the Field Museum gets most of the fanfare when it comes to T Rexes, which I get. It's the most complete T Rex ever found. But let's see, my favorite at AMNH. You know what? I'm gonna. Can I can I make it a tie? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> The Parasaurolophus, just because that's one of my favorite dinosaurs, so crazy looking. <laughs> but one that I think gets under heralded is the Styracosaurus. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's relative. You guys probably know it's relative of Triceratops, but it has like a way more crazy like hair metal band skull <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. So that one's pretty awesome, too. I
1: haven't heard it described like that, but I like it. Yeah. I yeah,
2: I just made that up. I haven't heard described that way either.
0: <laughs> it's kind of like a Statue of Liberty crown or something, yeah. too.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. Yeah. They
0: should make it, you know, they're in New York. They should do some kind of like art of like a Statue of Liberty and Styracosaurus, Styracosaurus you know? combo.
2: <laughs> Styracosaurus of Liberty? It almost, almost works. Almost. <laughs> it does,
0: yeah.
1: So I have to ask about the Versus show and caveat. When I did a little bit digging, it said it's New York City's speakeasy bar for intelligent nightlife. What does that mean?
2: <laughs> I mean, basically what it sounds like is uh, <laughs> it's, it's a basement bar on the Lower East Side. It was found and opened by a man named Ben Lilly, who used to run Story Collider. And it's in it an awesome space. Like There aren't many spaces, I think, outside of museums, specifically, that are geared specifically towards, for lack of a better phrase, like woke shows (laughs) there's a lot of different types of shows many couched on storytelling most of them have to do with like science science communication talk a lot about like progressive social issues but it's yeah it's a bar that does a bunch of very cool like smart nerdy stuff i don't think it happens as much or as as well within museums like i know a lot of museums they do a lot of like evening events or they do different types of talks and stuff but this is a little bit different in that it's more intimate and i think it because it's not of the museum, they have a, a larger breadth of what, not only like the tone and the voices they can take, but the actual content that they talk about. My colleague, Zach Martellucci and I had the, well, basically we argue about everything all the time <laughs> and we knew Ben was opening the space and we're like, well, what if we actually made a show where we argued different scientific things that we like would generally do in real life anyway? Mm-hmm. Because this really stemmed from a debate or kind of a would you rather that we would always ask people. And that is like. If you had unlimited resources to direct any way you want, would you rather put them to the exploration of outer space or the exploration of our oceans? So like that oceans versus space question was kind of the genesis for this. And so for every versus, we have two things pitted against each other. Some make sense, like microscopes versus telescopes, or we're we're about to do migration versus hibernation in December. Mm -hmm. And some are more non sequiturs, like... Dinosaurs versus paintings. (laughs) (laughs) What? Yeah, exactly. The idea is simply like which thing is more bad. Who sold their side as more awesome that night? So it's not really about like crapping on the other side as much as talking about why your topic is amazing. So Zach and I are like the scientific hype men, basically, and we have actual experts that we get to come and talk about their side. We have a referee slash MC, so it feels kind of like WrestleMania like, Um, and we try to keep the energy high. We kind of We try to make it a little bit ridiculous. I think that we kind of take the same ethos as our museum hack tours and that we put the entertainment and the engagement first Mm -hmm. as a means to actually get to content and education rather than assuming people care about the content or here strictly to learn. We want to make sure everyone's like engaged, having a great time. And then the learning is going to come from that. Cool. And so it's, yeah, we've done it for just a little bit over a year and it's been, it's been a ton of fun and I've learned a ton And I've met some amazing people, scientists, science communicators from all walks of life and all different levels and and areas of expertise.
1: Nice. So did they win by like a vote of applause at the end or something?
2: Oh, it's better than vote of applause. So when you enter, when you like you, you have your ticket, you go through the door and you are given a poker chip. (laughs) And at the end of the show, our referee Meg comes around with two different like big, um, Cups, basically, <laughs> one for each side, and you vote with your chip. And then we have a scale, like a you know, like a fourth grade science balance scale, <laughs> stage, and we pour them in at the same time. And then you see which team wins. And then whoever wins, the expert gets to wear a WWE championship belt.
1: Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> the dinosaurs in paintings. Did that one really happen?
2: Yes. No. That absolutely happened. It was like at first like that sounds weird. Why would you ever compare those? And then like there was an argument to be made on either side about what – which one was most bad. And then I think that's the most important part. Like the topic has to be immediately pretty polarizing. If I ask ten people and eight say one side, I'm like, all right, this topic isn't good. But it's got to be like four four to six, five to five. So once we pick a series of topics, then we start using our networks of people we know at museums and on science Twitter to start reaching out to see like – Who wants to come and nerd out about this with us?
0: (laughs) Did dinosaurs win or did the art win? You bet your dinosaurs (sighs) win.
1: But it wasn't immediately obvious who would be the winner. No, it was pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Wow.
0: (laughs) That's good. I'm glad dinosaurs won. Although I really like paintings of dinosaurs, so I don't know which category that would go in. I guess that would be a painting.
2: Oh, yeah. That that came up, too. (laughs) Charles Knight was not there for the voting (laughs) so
1: So you've also authored a couple books
2: that is that is true (laughs) it's crazy it's weird to hear it still because like like seven-year-old if you told like seven-year-old me like hey you're gonna write a couple books on dinosaurs one day a kid would have his brain would have exploded probably i don't know (laughs) but yeah i was approached by dk um who apparently found me through instagram because i I have a relatively large following more more so than the YouTube channel actually like I'm Dinosaur Whisperer on Instagram and they were looking for someone to work with them to make a couple kind of fun different types of kids books on dinosaurs and based on the Instagram based on like the way that we communicate in our tours it's like kind of quick and pithy and it's exciting and it you don't need a certain level of expertise to get into the conversation we worked together to flesh out a couple different books which were a ton of fun to make cuz I had never – it wasn't like – it wasn't even on my radar that I would write a book or be part <laughs> of the process. So it was, it was fun learning process on how that all works. It wasn't – it definitely wasn't like I had like a book written and I went to them and I was like, will you publish this, please? It was more <laughs> like – it was a very collaborative thing that we worked together to create a thing out of scratch. Wow. Which was
1: cool. Uh, I was wondering for the dinosaurs A to Z – the description, it says it's more than 150 dinosaurs and prehistoric animals. But, like, how do you choose what to include and what, what's the cutoff?
2: Uh, that's a great question. So, we <laughs> – first, I was just like, if I started at A and just write all the di- – like, relatively common, relatively famous dinosaurs from A to Z, how many could I get? And I wrote a bunch in there. And then it was like, what letters, if any, are we missing or what letters are – because if you're going to do A to Z, right, you want to have one for each. You don't want to have, like, 100 that start with S – We tried to make it at least – it wasn't too top-heavy with carnivores or herbivores. It wasn't too top-heavy with theropods or sauropods or or ceratopsians. So it was really – once we had like a list I think originally of closer to 200, it was like slowly just winnowing that down (laughs) to ones that were famous and cool and honestly that had good illustrations that we could find. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but also that were kind of representative across different genera of dinosaurs.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, because when I was thinking that, I'd be like, "Okay, you've got like a Potosaurus, then Brontosaurus, then Camarasaurus." Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going down a road.
2: <laughs> this is a fun challenge. Can we? Can we try it? Diplodocus. 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 <laughs> Euplocephalus. Ah, nice. Yeah. There's one that's like Fuji Raptor. Is that one? Am I crazy? Oh, F- there's Fukui, Fu-Kui Raptor. Raptor. Yeah. yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What about G? Oh, there's Gojirasaurus.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What about H, guys?
0: Hylaeosaurus,
2: There you go. Okay. And
0: Iguanodon.
2: Hypsilophodon. Oh, crap. J.
0: Uh, tyrant I want to say. Oh,
1: yeah. yeah. tyrant That counts. K.
2: Kentrosaurus. H, yeah. J, L. Lambiosaurus. Yeah. M. Myosaurus. And yeah. Nigerosaurus.
0: <laughs> o.
1: Oviraptor.
2: O. P. Patagotitan. There's a new one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Or Parasaurolophus.
2: Cute
1: Quantosaurus.
2: Quetzalcoatlus is not a dinosaur, but <laughs> close. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair because they weren't all dinosaurs, right? I wanted to include other things as well. A, oh, to kind of I mean, I think this is actually kind of important when you talk about dinosaurs to list other animals that are around at the time, just like today, it would be very disingenuous to be like everything's a mammal, right? yeah. I mean, that's not a, a pro or an accurate representation of the environment. So it's cool to learn about like other things that are alive at the time. Yeah. Definitely. Our Rapidosaurus, or Rahasaurus. Oh, yeah. Our Q-R-S, Supersaurus, T, Tyrannosaurus. U. Utah Raptor. There you go. Thank you, Utah. B Panadon, which I just learned about. I don't know what Y is, but Z is Zool, so oh, we got close. We y
0: go. could be E.
1: Oh, yeah, E-Chi. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there definitely an X.
0: I just can't oh, think of it right sure. now. Yeah. <laughs> it's something out of China, for sure.
2: Guys, if only there were a book... <laughs>
1: Could solve our problem, <laughs>
2: yeah. So basically, that was the process I went through, like what we just did.
1: <laughs> That's pretty fun, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so are you working on any future upcoming projects that you can talk about? Well, you mean you got the video coming out,
2: yeah? So, there's two things. So, I'm a runner, I run a lot, and in the Jurassic Park movies, you're always being chased by T-Rex. And, like, there's been a lot of debate about how fast a T-Rex can actually run. And so my, my first thought was, like, wait, could I outrun a T-Rex? <laughs> and so the idea behind this video is let's look at the, current, the most current biomedical research that estimates what their top speed was. Then figure out, well, how long is this race going to be? And, of course, then I'm just going to use the iconic Jeep chase scene from the mm-hmm. original. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so – Long story short, in order for me to beat a T-Rex in a race, I would have to run like one length of a track, like a Santa racetrack, 400 meters in less than 60 seconds, which is doable but not easy. And I, I'm not going to say anything more. You'll have to see what happens in the video. <laughs> no spoilers. Right. No spoilers. I will say we're – so we're split screening. It's not like I raced a, like a person in a T-Rex outfit. We're split screening me running on the track with that actual scene
1: mm.
2: in real time. So you'll see. We'll see what happens. Cool. That's good. Yeah, that's fun. The other thing I'm working on right now is another book with my colleague I mentioned, Zach Martellucci, and another friend – who is a stand-up comedian, actually. And we're writing a book about a rock. Not the country, <laughs> but an actual rock.
1: <laughs> a particular one?
2: Uh, its name is tentatively
1: Gina. Okay.
2: And Gina is a geode. Ooh. But no one knows that. I just, spoiler alert, no one knows that. Well, that's probably going to be the name of the book, so maybe that's not a spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But the idea behind this is, it's really about like teaching kids that It's what's on the inside that matters and what's on the inside that is beautiful and special and unique to all of us. And like it's this rock who is going through a lot of hard times coming – like not believing that until it discovers and we all find out there's this giant, amazing, beautiful geode on the inside and then everyone loves it for who it really is. Cool. Which is the general arc of the book. Nice. Yeah, sounds good. Which again was not even my idea. That was my stand-up comedian Kevin idea. He's like, listen, I have this idea for a rock book. You guys actually know the science behind this type of stuff. (laughs) I was like, sure, let's do it. It's
1: perfect. (laughs) Yeah, collaboration's great. (laughs) Yeah. Cool. So for our listeners then, uh, we've mentioned a few of the things, but if they wanted to find out more about you and your work, where's the best place for them to go?
2: Either Twitter or Instagram. I mean, if, well, if you are on Twitter, I'm simply Dustin Groick at Dustin Groick. On Instagram, I'm dinosaur whisperer. Good name. The the Instagram account, I used to Photoshop dinosaurs into realistic, like, New York City iconic landscapes and put them as, like, actual, the right size and the color. So it's like, oh, this is an actual animal that once existed. Can you imagine if it, like, walked around the corner near Times Square? Like, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I use Instagram a little bit more to kind of, like, document my adventures at different museums. There's still a ton of dinosaur content. And yeah, and Twitter, you guys know Twitter. It's just a crazy conversation. So there's a (laughs) lot A lot of bad dad jokes and puns on there as well as dinosaur content for sure. (laughs) But the YouTube channel is just The Dinosaur Show. And so definitely subscribe to that and you'll see me racing a T-Rex soon.
0: All right. Awesome. (laughs) Cool. Thanks so much for talking to us.
2: Yeah, no worries. This has been fun.
1: Thanks again, Dustin. It's always great talking to someone who's so clearly passionate. And again, he's done some amazing projects. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Quantosaurus, which was a request from Jack Draw. so thanks. It was an ornithopod that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Australia when it was south of the Antarctic Circle. It was a bipedal and herbivorous dinosaur, and the lower jaw had 10 teeth. Based on relatives, Quantosaurus would have had short thighs and long shins and been a fast runner. So it probably ran away from predators, similar to the way a gazelle does. Quantasaurus had claws on its feet and a long tail that was stiffened by ossified tendons that helped it with turning. It was about 6 feet, or 1.8 meters long, and it probably had a beak and leaf-shaped teeth in the back. Quantasaurus was a browser. It probably ate ferns and other vegetation using its hands, and it may have traveled in herds or flocks. It lived Mm -hmm. in a polar region, and it probably lived in cold temperatures. 21 to 37 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 6 to 5 degrees Celsius, and it was coldest during polar nights, which could last up to three months. Quantasaurus probably adapted to survive the cold. Its relatives, though, were active throughout the year, no hibernation. There have been dinosaur burrows, possibly of small ornithopods found along the southern Victorian coasts, which might be quantasaurus. Quantosaurus was found in 1996 as part of the Dinosaur Dreaming Project, which was run by Monash University and the National Museum of Victoria. It was found by Nicole Everett and described in 1999 by Patricia Vickers-Rich and Tom Rich. It was found near Inverloch. Only the jaw fragments are known. This is based on the jaw fragments. It probably had a short, stubby face. The holotype of Quantosaurus is of the left dentary of the lower jaw with 10 teeth. Two other jaws have been referred to Quantasaurus. They are found in the same year at the same site. And Patricia said, quote, the jaw is unique because it is short and stocky, whereas other jaws are long and slender. The type species is Quantasaurus intrepidus, and it's named after Qantas, the Australian airline, because mm-hmm. it shipped fossils around Australia as part of the Great Russian Dinosaurs exhibit between 1993 and 1996 and sponsored expeditions to South America and Eastern Europe. The name means quantus lizard, and the species name means intrepid in Latin, which refers to the harsh climate that it lived in. There may be up to six types of small ornithopods that lived in the Cretaceous in Australia, but they're only known from fragments. Relatives include Atlas Copcosaurus and Laelinosaurus. The first Victorian ornithopods were categorized as Hypsilophodontidae, it's a mouthful, based on similarities in the skull and tooth structure to Hypsilophodontids found in Europe, but They're now thought to be a wastebasket tax, and so it's undergoing revision. The validity of Quantasaurus is under review. Some think that it is valid. Others think that there's not enough diagnostic fossil material.
0: So exactly like the jaw that we talked about earlier (laughs) from Argentina Mm -hmm. is just a jaw enough. Who's to say? And our fun fact of the day is that to our count, there were 43 new dinosaur species named this year in 2018. At least that's how many we have reported plus one that we haven't reported yet.
1: (laughs) And that's just as of this recording, there's still a few days left in the year.
0: Yeah. So there could be another one or two or three, (laughs) but no matter what, that's the most that we've ever reported. It's one more than we reported last year and that averages out to one every eight and a half days. Wow. Yeah. So almost one every week.
1: It's a good time to be a dinosaur enthusiast. It
0: really is. Back in 2016, we only reported 30 new dinosaurs. I think there were one or two more that we didn't cover because that was the early days of us finding all of these dinosaur discoveries, but it was definitely less than 40. So I think we're pretty well into the peak here for most dinosaur discoveries, maybe even still increasing. Maybe next year there'll be more Yeah, I think
1: we've said that every year and there's always been more.
0: Yeah. I was a little bit worried that we might be passing the peak, but... This year, I think, oh, set the record. No worries. <laughs> right.
1: Plus, we're already hearing about papers that have been submitted for next year.
0: That's true. Yeah. So even if we are at the peak, it's gonna. there's going to be quite a long tail of more dinosaur discoveries for sure.
1: And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Happy holidays. Don't forget to subscribe to us so you don't miss out on any new episodes, especially our upcoming Best Of. And join our community on Patreon at patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time.